95, 96, 97, if you were 16, 17, 18 and living in the wrong community in Dublin, you had probably a one in four chance of being strung out in heroin by your 21st birthday. It's increasingly the norm in addiction services that people will present with use of a range of substances. High potency cannabis, up to 10 times more potent than the drug that was around 30 years ago. And this is what's available now. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Across the world, cannabis is being decriminalised and in some countries legalised, but with a higher potency and soaring prices. Consumption of weed has become the main drug of concern within teenagers. Today, I'm talking to the HSE consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Bobby Smith, who works with addicted young people and who fears a tsunami of health problems as attitudes to the drug become increasingly lenient. He tells me about the changing trends of problem drug use amongst teenagers, about the public health drive which has stamped out heroin addiction in young people, and how cannabis has taken over as the main reason why kids now need addiction services. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Your job was nearly created, wasn't it, because of the, the heroin problem? Yes, pretty much so, yeah. Mm. Um, that's, God, that's now 2003 is when I started in the job. But again, the, the nature of the health service, things move sort of slowly. So the idea for, for the job had arisen probably in the late 1990s. It just took a few years to, to mm. uh, get it created. Well, of course, it took a decade or so for heroin to settle in, I suppose, to the next generation and that. No, really, to be honest with you, uh, what happened in the 90s, um, it really wiped out a very, very young age range at that stage, you know. Um, we had the youngest population of heroin users in Europe back in the mid-1990s. It was, it was 95, 96, 97, if you were 16, 17, 18, and living in the wrong community in Dublin, mm. you had probably a one in four chance of being strung out in heroin by your 21st birthday. So it was it was actually really, really young people mm. who were becoming addicted to heroin. Now, some of those might take a year or two before they got into treatment, but um, it, what was seen is, a, I suppose, an increase in number of people running into trouble at the age of 16, 17. But the doctors who were providing the services, their training was really with adults, and that's where the idea of, of getting a, a child psychiatrist on board And what grown. sort of ways were they presenting, like very young people addicted and how long how, how quickly were they getting addicted and what sort of problems were they presenting with yeah I suppose the, the typical timeline at that stage was probably one to two years from first use to pitching up at a service sort of saying I'm strung out I need help um, and and the, the pattern was typically in the mid 1990s it wasn't heroin injecting so injecting had happened in the 80s got a really bad name um, then in the 1990s people discovered you could smoke heroin or you know, mm. um, um, smoke it off foil. You know. Yeah. Um, and that sort of half normalized it again. So it introduced it to uh, a, a new young generation of kids who, as I said, were in these sort of communities where there was already a bit of a culture of heroin use. Um, most cases then, they would just smoke on a 
Thursday or Friday and a Saturday, and then after a, a, a few weeks, you suddenly find themselves, maybe you're smoking Tuesday to Sunday, and then a few months later, it's actually seven days a week. And then a, a month or two after that, you wake up and you got the sniffles, and you think, God, I'm getting a cold. And you realize, no, um, you know, I have the sickness. I'm, I'm now strung out. Mm. And uh, young people were, were sort of blindsided by the, the, the fact that this could happen to them. Um, yeah, because, you know, I'd often hear people saying that, um, you know, back in the day they were smoking heroin so they didn't feel they had a problem. With it. Yeah. So that image of the shooting up the needle thing was a very powerful image, wasn't it, of it, heroin? Yeah, it really was. And yeah. it was a, an image that became stigmatised really from the mid-80s on, very mm. much with the emergence of HIV. Everyone knew injecting carried risks and was a bad thing to do. Um, and, you know, I think conversations around stigma often lose sight of the fact that mm. even within the population of people who use drugs, there are different layers of stigma. People who smoke heroin tend to look down on people who inject heroin. Mm. People who use cocaine or other drugs tend to look down on people who use heroin in any format uh, and so on. Yeah, absolutely. The um, But there was obviously very successful in one way marketing that came in there in the 80s with that needle injection. You have obviously those sicknesses, yeah. um, AIDS and... Um, it, it certainly other illnesses that were kind of from sharing the yeah hep C was, yeah, was a big hep one C, of course that, so yeah it got a lot of negative publicity and pushed everybody into smoking it <laughs> yeah so people started smoking it but unfortunately then uh, Nicola what happens is that your smoking is a reasonably efficient way to use your bag of heroin but it's not quite as efficient as injecting it so people would usually start out really clear, I'm never going to inject, uh, I don't want to um, use a needle. But after a year or two, you're strung out, you've got pretty limited financial resources, you're having to rob and steal to get the money together to get your bag of gear. Mm. Um, so rather than smoke it, people will then sometimes reach a point where you go, I, I think I will use a needle. Yeah. Um, to get me through today and I won't do it all the time. And I suppose there was that movement from smoking to injecting, where, again, even at the time of entering treatment, maybe half the people had already made that transition. Uh, and it was a, actually a real value of treatment if you got someone before they'd moved on to injecting, because that just brings with it a whole additional mm -hmm. pile of risks. And presumably, the you know, the younger you get people, the better, obviously, that they can't. Yeah, um, but the, the flip side of that is, is, is it's really bad to become addicted to heroin at the age of 16 or yeah. 17. Uh, obviously, if you do become addicted at 16 or 17, it's great to get into treatment soon. But um, any addiction, but particularly heroin addiction, just mm -hmm. completely derails a life. Um, and um, it, it actually, in terms of treatment outcome, probably people... People who, say, have a two-year history of heroin addiction in their mid-20s do better than people who have a two-year history of heroin addiction in their mid-teens. Because uh, they're a bit older and wiser and they had sort of some degree of functioning and some yeah. resource to fall back upon. They, they did actually get through their adolescent years. Whereas yeah. if your adolescent years have been derailed by heroin use, um, you have less sort of assets or less tools in your in your armory mm. to, to move away from your addiction. Mm. Um, so how many kids were, when we call them kids, teenagers, yeah. teenagers mainly, and, you know, how young were some of the kids when you arrived in 2003? How many were you seeing a year 
Across the services um, I worked in, there was one across the car park from here, I suppose. That there was two, two or three. There was two services south of, of the the Liffey. Uh, there was one in Ballyfermot, uh, the Fortune House Adolescent Service, and then there was one in the National Drug Treatment Centre. And I had a role in both of those. And across those two services, I suppose in 2003, it was probably about 30, 35 young people attending the service on any given week. Um, And it tended to be the same young people week after week. Um, And that was actually a big fall off uh, compared to treatment demand that would have existed, say, you know, six or eight years beforehand. Uh, back in the about 96, 97, there were about 200 young people in Dublin alone presenting with heroin addiction every year. Uh, and it dropped from, say, 200 a year in the mid-90s down to maybe 30 or 40 or 50 a year by the time I started in the job in 2003. And why was it dropping? Heroin got a really bad name, um, and deservedly so. <laughs> So, you know, the, the generation who came behind quite quickly, you know, as I said, you just didn't want to be 16 or 17 back in 94, 95 in the communities that were blighted by the heroin problem. If you hit that age, even five years later, you had your older brothers and peers to look at and go, I don't want to go down that path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though young people might have used drugs, they just, they, they increasingly turned away from heroin. Nice. So, and that pattern really has continued to today where it has a dreadful name amongst young people that I would meet who, who maybe be willing to, to snort any a line of any white powder in front of them. But if you offer them heroin for nothing, they'd be more inclined to box you in the face. Uh, and and yeah. it's just not a drug that they would con- contemplate using. Because it's not cool. It's not cool. It, it's the opposite of cool. It is hugely stigmatised in their eyes. And, and they're not going to do something that's going to bring... That, that, yeah, that, that, image, yeah, that, that image, image of upon themselves. themselves. Yeah. That powerful image that still exists, really, of that sort of idea of somebody being in the gutter and, yeah. you know, dirty. And, you know, it is all of those things around it. So we assume, obviously, that cocaine comes next and... Um, we assume that. I'm yeah. Looking um, at your face there and it's obviously not... Well, I, I suppose as the heroin problem began to abate, uh, and when I started in the job, I was employed to work in adolescent addiction, not in adolescent heroin addiction yes. specifically. So yeah. I was trying to develop a service that could respond to all the addiction problems. And actually at, the, at that stage, the one I was most mindful of was alcohol, you know, because there's obviously been a, a pretty long-standing problem with uh, alcohol across all age ranges in Ireland. Um, but we also broadened the service to deal with other drugs as well. Uh, but really, from the outset, when we began to develop those services, which is maybe 2005, 2006, to broaden the focus away from heroin, um, hash, or, you know, which was, would have been the dominant form of cannabis back 15, 16 years ago, would have been accounting for maybe a third of referrals, alcohol accounting for a third of referrals, and the other third were a hodgepodge of other substances, including benzos, including some cocaine. Um, but that was what was generating the work at that stage. Mm. Uh, and when you say hash was the main form of cannabis, explain that. What, what is it and what's yeah. the difference between... Hash is, I suppose, cannabis resin. Um, so it's a, a hard block, I suppose, which is clearly, again, derived from the cannabis plant. Um, it was the dominant form of cannabis in Ireland through the 70s, 80s, 90s and into the early noughties. Um 
it um, would be sold in a, a 10 spot or a 20 spot of, of, of hash. People would heat it up and crumble it into um, a roly, you know, which, which contained tobacco, uh, and smoke it. And that was how, how you got your, your THC or your, your cannabis at that stage. And why were people coming into addiction services because they were smoking hash? Because I think there is a, a general sort of belief that it's just a bit of hash. Isn't that yeah. why we're talking to um, And In fairness, the problems then weren't terribly severe. Um, it was maybe having some adverse mental health impact. Parents or, or sometimes the young person themselves felt they were, they sort of lost control of their relationship with this drug that they used to sort of enjoy it, but they now found themselves needing it more than they were comfortable with. It was maybe having a negative impact on their focus, their concentration, their motivation, their school participation. And a combination of those reasons, I suppose, uh, led to some young people been referred into the service, but they weren't particularly high-end or very complex problems that they were presenting with. Mm. So nothing like the kind of problems that the kids coming in with the heroin addiction, obviously. Nothing yeah. like that yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. No. But still, for the young person who had the problem, you know, that, that addiction, even the, even those milder addictions or those addictions to less damaging substances, they sort of derail life for a while. Mm. Um, so there's still uh, a role for uh, a response and an intervention. And the multi-drug users that you talk about that were using benzos and cocaine and probably anything else they could get their hands on, yeah. um, that then isn't an addiction to a substance, is it, or is... Any addiction, an addiction totally to a substance, is it? It's increasingly the norm in addiction services uh, that people will present with use of a range of substances. Even services that have traditionally been alcohol-focused are seeing you know, an increased use of maybe cocaine alongside the drink, particularly at weekends, or benzos uh, alongside the, the alcohol. Um, so it, it's really common for people to present with use of multiple substances mm. uh, and always has been. E- even the, that population who became addicted to heroin back in the in the 1990s, unfortunately, many of them need significant addiction treatment input still. Um, and and there's, there's a very significant, say, cocaine problem amongst that particular cohort even now. Um, so polydrug use, polysubstance use, uh, to include alcohol, you know, is pretty common and certainly is a big feature of, of work in adolescent services. And underlying it all then is when you can control the addiction to the drug, you're then treating with medication what, anxieties and other things like that, depressions? To be honest with you, I mean, we would have used medication a bit, for, or a lot, in fact, with the young people who are addicted to heroin. So we would have used substitution treatment with substances like methadone. Uh, but for other young people presenting with other addictions, whether it's alcohol, cannabis, um, cocaine, it's unusual actually to end up prescribing for anything. Um, obviously, we are trying to look at what are the coexisting problems. And for some young people, there may be a background mental health issue that could be an anxiety disorder or a depressive disorder that's potentially driving the substance use. Uh, and where that exists, yeah, you, you would step in uh, and look at medication-based treatments. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's actually relatively rare. I would say for the young people attending the services that I'm working in now, it's we might prescribe or someone might be prescribing, sometimes a GP might do it or sometimes they might be attending 
child psychiatry service, maybe 10, 20% of them max would be on any sort of prescribed psychiatric medication. Um, So what we would be doing more commonly for some of the mental health symptoms, because a lot of them will describe feelings of anxiety or lack of self-confidence or feeling uneasy uh, around other young people um, or maybe feelings of hopelessness at times. It's more a psychological approach, Mm -hmm. CBT-type approaches to um, support them in, in... coming up with strategies to deal yeah. with those those sort of unpleasant emotional experiences. Yeah, so sort of counselling and things Counseling like for them as an individual. Yeah. And I suppose another key element of treatment with teenagers is actually family involvement. Right. So we have a family therapist mm. uh, on, I think, pretty much all of the teams that work in the adolescent addiction space. Now, one of the things that's been concerning you over the last few years has been the amount of teens you're seeing coming in with problems to do with cannabis, which is no longer that sort of vaguely, we won't call it innocent hash of the... the, the yeah, I wish, I wish it was back with hash again, because yeah. hash was, was grand. Yeah. Um, so what's but, going on? Um, I, I'm trying to remember when exactly it happened, Nicola. I, I think it was around 2008, 2009. I remember being in a team meeting, mm. and... Uh, there was a new team member who'd begun working with a young person who was describing this person's cannabis use and how he had debts of 500 euros and, and the parents had paid these off and there was now a debt of 1,000 euros. And I very smugly sort of said to this new team member, no, there's obviously something else going on here. This can't be just cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, that There must be a cocaine problem that the young person hasn't felt able to tell you about yet. You need to you know, explore that further. Um, but, you know, they, they did that and they came back and said, no, it is just cannabis. They're spending 50 euros a day on cannabis. And then I started hearing the story again and again and again. And indebtedness has actually become a significant driver of demand for the service. Um, that families will lose patience when they pay off the 500 or 1,000 euros the second or third time and they say, mm. you know, you need some help. Um so that and that heralded, I suppose, the arrival of the, the, the of of weed or you know, herbal cannabis, as, the, as uh, it's sometimes called. Yeah. Uh, and the the demise of hash. Right. So we sold it a, a, a two gram bag of of uh, herbal cannabis. Uh, was and this looks like it's a, it's a it looks a, it looks like a, yeah it looks more like sort of tobacco uh, yeah. that that type of a look anyway it's dried plant material yeah um, so it's the buds of the of the cannabis plant um, sold in a two gram bag and it was really expensive actually in Ireland and remains pretty expensive by international standards but young people were, were paying up to 50 euros for a two gram bag and a heavy user could easily smoke two grams in a day and again going back to my heroin using cohort from 10 years beforehand you know the typical heroin use was maybe three bags a day of heroin which was about 50 or 60 euros so I, I suddenly began meeting kids who were just smoking cannabis who were getting through as much money uh, in a week as, as the heroin users had been. Um, but the, the payment model was completely different. Um, to get a bag of heroin, you have to have 20, 20 euros in your hand. Uh, you don't get it uh, on tick. You don't, you don't, you're not allowed to build up a debt. Uh, whereas the payment model for cannabis was that uh, you could build up debt. And mm. um, you know, once it got up to 200 euros, you might be asked, then you need to clear that debt. Most teenagers can scratch together 200 euros. 
um, and they can maybe do that two or three times. But once they demonstrated an ability to pay 200 euros, they may be allowed to build up a debt of 500 euros. And then it could get to 1,000 or whatever. And then they tended to have to go to mum and dad. Mm. Now, the financial end of things is just one aspect of it. Um, but it's sort of the the mental health and what is this cannabis resin? And is that is that the same thing as skunk, which we're hearing about? Skunk is really a UK term right. uh, that, that was used to describe, I suppose, the, the strong forms of cannabis that, that have begun to emerge Principally, it would seem from Holland, maybe back in the in the noughties, um, that if you grow cannabis in a certain type of environment, particularly if you have certain strains of cannabis, you get rid of all the, actually all the male plants. The female plants, when left alone, produce uh, a lot more THC, which right. is the active drug. I they suppose, would, wouldn't they? In cannabis, <laughs> yeah. Um, if women are left alone, they can do fantastic well, things. That's certainly, the, yeah, Des Corrigan used to do lectures about this, and he used to talk about this as the feminist dream for the extermination of all males and the females flourish. <laughs> so these female cannabis plants go a bit mad in terms of their THC production when, when the males are removed. And then it's grown in artificial light with uh, a hydroponic solution, so grown, grown in liquid. Mm. So people may, may hear about grow houses. It's reasonably sophisticated say, yeah, growing environment. Yeah. yeah, And that produces high-potency um, cannabis where potency can go up to sort of 10, 15, 20% and even higher uh, in terms of the dry weight rate dry weight of the product, whereas maybe back in the 70s and 80s where you did get herbal cannabis, it might have been 2-3%. Right. So it was up to 10 times more potent than the drug that was around 30 years ago. And this is what's available. And this is what's available now, yeah. Mm. So what effects is that having then? I mean, that extremely strong potency compared to the likes of the old-fashioned hash, which, you know, seemed to make people a bit giddy and maybe you know, a little bit lethargic for a while, hungry. Um, Not that I'd know, but... And then what's the difference? What's happening now with this more potent drug? It's stronger. uh, So you're getting a more intense drug effect. Um, So people get more stoned more easily. Some people don't like that and actually will try it and go, I just don't like feeling that way, and they they, they move away from it. But for people who do enjoy that that, that experience... and because it's more intense, they're more likely to return to it more frequency. So I think the actual number of people using cannabis, I don't think has increased that much uh, over the last 15, 20 years. I just think it's that the, the minority who use it regularly, which is maybe 10% of people between the ages of 15 and 25 or so, um, are just using it more intensely and more regularly, and they're using this more potent form. Uh, and many people do get away with using it intermittently. Other people quickly sort of lose control of their relationship with the drug. So rather than it being something I just choose to do occasionally and enjoy feeling a bit stoned, they, they start feeling the need to be stoned. That's when you're moving in that sort of addictive yeah. direction. Um, and then it can have lots of downstream impacts. Uh, apart from the cost, there are the, the mental health uh, impacts that some people experience. Um, um, anxiety uh, is a really, really common one. Uh, people can get very self-conscious, paranoid and, and uneasy around people. Um, some people report a loss of motivation, drive and energy, and that can sort of seem a bit like depression or feeling down. They get they sort of tend to disengage from uh, friends and activities that don't aren't 
heart revolved around mm. getting stoned. Um, life gets a bit duller and emptier, and I think that maybe perpetuates the drug use, but also maybe leaves you more vulnerable to feeling a bit down and miserable. Um, it can damage relationships. If you're in a relationship, your partner might get a bit, you know, yeah. pissed off about the fact you're constantly stoned, and, and that then brings its own pressures as well. And it can remove somebody from their friend group and, you know, they get left behind. Yeah, that, that you know, within a friend group can sort of fracture, that, that there'll be a subgroup within that who get who are into their weed and, and they find other people who are, who are sort of into that sort of subculture and they lose connection with the, the group who are not into that sort of scene. So mm-hmm. it, gets, it can become a bit sort of self-perpetuating. So you've seen a lot... Yeah, it's certainly in in our age range, you know, which is under eighteen. It's it's cannabis is the main drug. Now sometimes there's poly substance use, but but cannabis is the main drug for probably about seventy percent. So that's the main drug that's causing the problems that are are, are big enough for people to end up in in addiction, in addiction services. Seventy yeah, yeah. percent of them are are cannabis. It's cannabis is, is the main drug, and, and the services I work in are sort of in Dublin and uh, Wicklow. But I know it's the exact same situation nationally. And actually, if you go up as far as the age of twenty-five, up to that age range, there's no substance is 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 driving demand more for addiction treatment than cannabis. It even surpasses alcohol um, right up to the age of 25. Mm-hmm. Alcohol and cocaine begin to compete with it over the age of 25 as drivers of demand. Uh, would it worry you to hear that from the world of organised crime, uh, there's a hell of a lot more of it on its way and um, that sort of controlled growing, industrial growing, is uh, like becoming the favoured occupation because uh, cocaine's a bit annoying because they keep getting, you know, seizures and it's seen as much more high risk. There's this attitude that the world and we are start, we, we have this very relaxed attitude to cannabis that we think it's okay, sure it's just whatever. And people are just having a smoke and uh, that, you know, it's not taken very seriously. Um, it's certainly taken less seriously than other drugs at all levels of society, perhaps even including by the criminal justice system. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, I suppose it doesn't surprise me to hear that 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 it's become a, a key focus of interest for organised crime. Attractive. It's becoming a kind of more attractive drug, maybe to be involved in trafficking. Yeah. And I suspect that pattern will continue. I come back to that conversation about hash. Hash used come from Morocco, I think, primarily. Uh, the upside of, so you have to pay someone to produce it and, and, and I also have the hassle of trying to import it across borders. Um, the upside now of grow houses uh, means you can actually, you are your own producer and supplier and it's all within the one jurisdiction as long as your grow house isn't discovered. Uh, you couldn't so, get a lot of, yeah, a lot of people. You couldn't have yeah. a lot of risk, I suppose, yeah. uh, in terms of um, producing and distributing mm. and importing your substance. You bypass all those problems. So, you know, should we be should we be looking at and having these conversations about legalizing it in some way or certainly decriminalizing it or yeah. controlling it, you know, in some way? There's a lot of countries across Europe that are moving towards that. Yeah. Um 
Yeah, there's a difference between decriminalisation and legalisation. And in Ireland, we're sort of, we almost have a de facto decriminalisation at the moment. I, I don't meet young people who are facing criminal charges for cannabis possession. I'm, I'm working with the heaviest cannabis users in the country, so I would be meeting them if they, if that was how the justice system responded to, to um, drug use. Um, but, but it's still prohibited and there's still a hassle for a young person to negotiate if they are found using um, because it is prohibited. Um, and decriminalisation, say, as in Portugal, means that, you know, it's a bit like that, that, that you get, if you're found by the Guardi or the police over there, your drug is taken off you and you're sent to a dissuasion commission to answer for your behaviour. Mm-hmm. Um, Legalisation, then, as you know, is obviously where you decide, no, to actually not just allow people to use it, um, but actually try and regulate a market and producers and sellers, right? And there is talk, certainly across Europe, in a number of locations now. I think Germany has talked about moving down that path, Luxembourg has, and Malta uh, as well. And parts of Spain have brought in that you can grow for your own use a certain amount of cannabis plants. Yeah. Four, I think. Yeah, and I think then, and I think that that's sort of grey legislation, if that mm. makes sense. I'm not sure, is that the federal law or is that local, local communal, mm. you know, um, permission to do that? It's going on there that if it's a private members club, you can... Exactly, and I think what they were allowed people to do, if each person is allowed to grow four plants, then a group of people are allowed to come together as a, as a cannabis club mm-hmm. and each person has their four plants and so on. So it's Coming, it's moving sort of towards de facto legalization. And yeah. I think you can then become a member of the club. And, yes. and I guess that's where it gets harder then to, to regulate it and has the potential to become rather silly because I, I do meet young people who, who go to Spain and it seems rather easy to become a member okay. of, of a club and then suddenly you've got, you're buying weed for the week. Um, and where legalization has happened in Europe, um, where steps have been made in that direction to date, like the Netherlands is really weird, right? You can buy cannabis uh, in the coffee shop. Well, you used to be able to actually, as a foreigner, and I, I don't think you're allowed, you have to be local. But the, the cannabis that was been supplied to the coffee shop was entirely criminal. So the production and, and you know, the wholesale uh, production and selling at the back door of the coffee shop was an illegal act. Um, but Organizations, the, the criminal justice turned a blind eye to it, but the selling at the front was explicitly permitted, um, which is a nonsense as well. Yeah. Hence, maybe people are, are thinking about the options now being used in Canada and in states in, in the USA, where there is a legal production system, there's a legal distribution system, and there's legal sellers, retailers, a bit like an off-license. Yeah. Um, for me... I worry about us heading down that path because um, I, I think it'll just provide more cannabis and normalise it even further and I'll end up seeing more young people who are addicted to cannabis, quite mm-hmm. frankly. And I think one of the reasons people are attracted to that idea is they view the primary goal as getting rid of the criminals. Even That for me isn't the primary goal. My primary goal is trying to keep as many young people as healthy and well as possible. Uh, but even in terms of that primary goal of getting rid of the criminals, it doesn't succeed. Uh, in California, where cannabis has been legal now for about uh, five years, in Canada, where it's been legal for two or three years, in Colorado, where it's been legal for about six, seven years, there is thriving black markets in all of those locations. The criminals, the black market will always be able to undercut 
the regulated market. They don't have to pay tax and PRSI and VAT and sick pay for their employees and, uh, you know, property tax or anything like that. So they'll always be able to undercut. So who will go to the criminals in the context of a, of a mixed market? It would be the poorest, it would be the heaviest users, and it would be the youngest users. The most vulnerable sector of cannabis users will remain in the hands of the criminals, whereas middle-aged, middle-class, occasional tokers, they'll be able to go off to their to their cannabis coffee shop and pick their favorite blend. But I don't think we should be designing, you know, mm. Well, I mean, the same could be said, really, for alcohol. There is a big black market there in alcohol as well, where it's cheaper in cigarettes, obviously, which we know about. Yeah. Um, the tobacco industry has spent a long time lobbying to say that the uh, smuggled tobacco is far worse than the ones that, you know, which really, I think they're all being made in the same factories, a bit like the designer clothes. But... Um, yeah, I mean, so in other words, you feel it would be a pointless exercise because the people with problem use are still going to buy it from the black market where there won't be regulations on what they're, or the potency of what they're creating. It'll just be another source of supply. Mm. Uh, and it'll be a further step towards normalising it, which I think it's already become too normalised and too acceptable amongst a, a cohort of young people. Mm. If we start actually selling it in shops, that that, that subset will grow. In, in Canada, uh, which has been sort of moving in that direction of uh, having a legal market for really the last 15 years or so, I know they only formally legalised in 2018, 2019, but there was a tolerated grey market there for about 10 or 12 years beforehand, often in the guise of dispensaries and so-called medical cannabis where you went in a bit of a nod and a wink and you left with your bag of weed, right? But against that backdrop of incremental normalisation of cannabis use in Canada, there's now one in every eight young Canadians smokes cannabis on a daily basis. In Ireland, on a, in terms of daily use, it's probably one in 80. So there's 10 times as many daily cannabis users in Canada as there is in Ireland. And with my public health hat on, I'm sort of going, well, why on earth would we be looking at the country with the highest rate of, of daily cannabis use in the world, which is what Canada seems to be, as a model uh, in terms of thinking about how we develop our cannabis policies. Mm. How many teenagers with heroin addiction did you treat last year? Um, zero. That's an amazing figure. Yeah, going back to what I said earlier, it was 200 a year presenting across Dublin back in the mid-90s, which is only, what, 25 years ago. It's gone from 200 to pretty much zero. Um, I, I, when I, again, when I started in the job, um, I, I used to regularly, once a month, I'd be starting another young person on, on methadone treatment or suboxone, one of the substitution treatments, at least once a month. I haven't had to start a young person on a substitution treatment for... Uh, opioids in the last six, seven years, which is a remarkable change. And um, it's something that gets left out of the conversation around drug policy in Ireland. Um, there's a, there's, I think there are certain stakeholders who are keen to create the impression the problem is as bad as ever, that tackling uh, drug addiction is a pointless, futile exercise. I actually think Ireland and the heroin problem, uh, particularly Dublin and its heroin problem, is a real case example of how a society can really tackle uh, a significant drug problem and achieve remarkable change in a relatively short period of time. I really believe we should be hopeful and optimistic about um, being able to tackle the, the problems that are there currently. Mm. 
So in other words, it is so uncool that, I mean, heroin's image, like the image and the marketing of it in the background really are more significant than maybe we usually consider, but... Because it's certainly available, you know. Yeah. It's available as easy probably in, the, in those communities, probably cheaper than it was 25 years ago. But and there's obviously people who are deemed in the figures, I haven't looked at the figures in a long time actually, um, heroin, and they, they will, you know, go through their lives and, you know, whenever they pass on, are we going to end up in a society where nobody uses heroin? I think that would be a bit naive, I suppose. Uh, you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to think that that's how it will pan out. But heroin, people used heroin back in the 90s and in the 80s because it produces a pretty pleasurable short-term effect. Uh, I would be shocked if there wasn't some future point where it leaked back into usage uh, in the future. So we shouldn't ever be complacent. I'm delighted yeah. that right now young people have really decided to turn their back on it. But like North America, once again, shows us that opioid problems uh, can, can come back and come back with a vengeance. They have a horrendous opioid problem in the States, which seem to have its origins in excessive prescribing by reckless doctors promoted by almost evil pharmaceutical companies who pushed really potent uh, opioid medications on patients who didn't need them. Uh, they became addicted. They then pulled supply. Uh, and those, a lot of those people then switched to heroin and they're now moving on to fentanyl. Uh, and the, the opioid epidemic in the States uh, and in Canada is as bad as it's ever been. So, you know, we should be grateful that we've avoided going down that path. Uh, but it does remind us that, you know, um, mm. heroin problems can, can can return. Like, drugs seem to be like a weed that, you know, if you let them, if you turn, if you turn away from the garden for a little while, it's covered. But if you just keep plucking away. Yeah, yeah that's probably a good analogy. Um, that, you know, you can maintain your garden, but it does take work. Mm. Uh, and I think in terms of drugs and drug policy in Ireland, it probably is a, a good analogy. The, the weeds maybe change over time um, and, and might require slightly different methodologies uh, and approaches. Mm. You've got to deal with the problem that's in front of you. Um, and, and, and the fact that there's, that, that there's you know, weeds still growing in your garden, despite your efforts, doesn't mean it's all futile and pointless. It just means you've got to keep working away at it. And we should be grateful for the fact that Ireland now, and Dublin particularly, is a vastly better, different place to to what it was 25 years ago in those same communities that were blighted by the heroin problem in the the 90s, where there's still many adults who continue to struggle with those exact same problems. Um, Teenagers in those communities have a tiny risk of developing a heroin problem. Um, still pro- risk of developing drug problems and alcohol problems, but at least it's not that horrendous heroin yeah. problem that seemed to have such enduring mm. devastation on, on on not just adolescents, but a whole lifetime. Mm. Good news for once. Um, finally, to what I was going to ask you was, um, maybe you don't have an example, but how young are they presenting with problem cannabis use in particular? Yeah. Um, so the average age, our service is pretty much specifically under 18, so everyone is under 18, and the average age of presentation will be 16, 17. But it is one of the questions we do ask people, you know, when, what age were you when you first started using cannabis? And for probably about a third of them, they started to use at 13 or younger. 
So it is leaking into very late primary school, very start of secondary school. It's already present. And, you know, the, the, the supplier to them is, it could be their big brother. It's some lad in third year or fourth year. Um, and that's who they're getting their wheat from. Um, and it's often initially, there'll be one lad in the gang, you know, who's getting it from the, the, the lad in fourth year or fifth year who's, who's dealing it. And then the rest of them all just chip in their 10 or 20 euros to, uh, and, and they then smoke a bag, whatever, on a Saturday night. Um, but most of the group aren't having any interaction with anyone apart from their mate who's doing the transaction. Mm. They're not buying online. No, that's not what I'm seeing that much of. It's definitely you can a, see what they're doing with the revolutes. <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a it's a a bit of a trend uh, that there's definitely increased move in that direction. And maybe the lad who's doing the selling in fourth year or fifth year is buying online. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I think some of the people you might know better than me mightn't be too happy about someone bypassing them if word gets out and then they could run into more trouble perhaps uh, with their competitors. Uh, That's the employment I'd be worried about if I was in, I can tell you, the middleman in, in, in drugs. Yeah. I think they're going to be, well, you know what I mean, I think they're going to be elbowed out. Yeah, they're usually well, they're usually vulnerable and they're usually people with significant substance use problems themselves and we would see that pattern in our own service that young people... They start doing a bit of selling and, and in order to sort themselves out. But it seems to be a good way of actually getting your debts to grow even yeah. more because they're out of their debt with the lads they're negotiating with. Uh, or sometimes a bag of, of, of weed goes missing on them and they're told, listen, you owe us that five grand now yourself. Mm. Uh, and I, I have no idea how these things happen, but I, I do suspect that some people have been sort of exploited or rolled over or been messed around mm-hmm. Um, once they get drawn into that world. Are they doing the same with the the weed into the... Is it the only way they're they're taking it through smoking it or are they baking or is there anything? Um, for, again, the, the people who attend our service, the, by and large, they're smoking it. Um, some people will be using bongs. Um, edibles. They're not wh- bothered whipping it up into a, a nice... Chucky cake or anything, no? No, no, not really. Uh, the edibles are a bit of an issue, and they seem to be coming again from North America. That, that like they look like sweets. They look like um, Haribos. Um, but unfortunately, people are eating them like Haribos, where they're meant to be. You know, take half half of a sweet is is an adequate dose to, to get stoned. You have to be. We have to wait an hour or two for the effect. But people are using edibles, which could be safer in some ways if you get the dose right, because you're not smoking mm-hmm. stuff into your lungs. Uh, but they're not getting the dosages right. But again, from our, our service users, our clients, it's mainly smoking. Vaping has become something we're hearing about now occasionally where people are getting liquid preparations, which may or may not contain THC again because it's not a regulated market. There's a worry that some of that is synthetics. Again, you might you remember the head shops, right? 10 or 12 years ago, they were selling a lot of synthetic cannabis or synthetic cannabis type products. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've largely vanished, but they maybe are, are making a bit of a comeback uh, via the, the vaping type products. I always thought it was very interesting, the, that big shop in, in South William Street. Do you remember that was a weird period when everything Nirvana, Nirvana no, or something like that. Nirvana got burnt down, is that right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it seemed to be on a Thursday, Friday, Friday and Saturday night after the pub, you, you'd just go along uh, rather than getting a, a takeout from uh, an off licence, you'd get a, a bag of methadrone. Oh, whatever uh, it was, never yeah. knew what they were taking. Yeah. And the mental health impacts were really nasty for all of that stuff. I remember being in Amsterdam years ago, like when I was 21 or something like that, and going to this club and they used to sell ecstasy yeah. In this club, I was always terrified of ecstasy, thank God. Yeah. I never, ever, I had friends who took it, yeah. which had been my kind of generation thing. Yeah. I just yeah. wasn't interested in it. Yeah. And they used to test it for you in the club. If you wanted to buy it, they'd test, see what was yeah. in it, make sure it was safe before you took it. Because there was all these sort of horror stories about yeah. people's brains exploding. And yeah. I still tell my children that. If you take ecstasy, your brain will explode. Although the testing was to confirm that it was ecstasy, that it wasn't anything else. Because yeah. ecstasy in itself is the yeah, carries down. risk, mm. but, but it's, there's other things that mimic yeah. it that carry even more risk. So the testing was actually to confirm that it really was MDMA. That's what they were testing, yeah. yeah. And, and, that and that's, that's still going on. And I think there's talk of pilots of doing something vaguely similar. Now, not quite as liberal as that. Mm. Um, about You can do front-of-house, in Ireland, yeah, yeah. You, you can do front-of-house testing which is what that yeah, is, as in you yeah. go up, you hand in a little That's bit of your drug, was, yeah. they test it for you, they confirm this is just MDMA, there's nothing else in it, therefore it's safe for you to use. Um, what, I, I'm not sure how it's going to operate in Ireland, but I think it is going to be piloted. It could be a what's called back-of-house testing, yeah. where you give a little sample in, you're not told what was exactly was in yours, but um, a word is then put out if they do detect any nasty chemical in a particular type of pill, that, that mm-hmm. there'll be a, a poster stuck up outside, this pill contains this drug, watch out for it. Um, well, it's not a bad but, idea, is it? Um, I know no, it's, uh, it's not really it, a bad idea. some of those things. As long as it, for me, like yeah, it, like if, as long as it doesn't, Push abuse, as for yeah. me, is, is the nervousness around it. Mm-hmm. If you ask young people, why do you not take drugs? Or last time you were offered drugs, why didn't you take them? A lot of them would sort of say, I don't know what's in it. I don't trust it. Mm-hmm. So if you remove that reason from people not to take drugs, then more people, by definition, will take drugs a bit more often. So the question is, is the benefit that arises from detecting maybe the odd nasty chemical, does that make up for the fact you've actually drawn more people into the risk of behaviour in the first place? Um, I mean, and that remains to be seen. Well, Bobby Smith, thank you very much. Thanks, Nicholas. Lovely chatting to you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.